0: Kristen Gagnon, hello. Hello. Uh, So can you tell me what is Pop Can Crit?
1: Pop Can Crit uh, stands for Popular Canadian Architecture Criticism. Um, It's the name we gave to the symposium that's looking at the current conditions in popular Canadian architecture criticism that was held at the Israeli School of Architecture and Urbanism this past October twenty first, 2016.
0: And you put this all together?
1: I did. I was the, the lead organizer.
0: So what, what what was the sort of idea behind the project that, that drove you to, to put this together?
1: So this is a, a component of my own doctoral research, which is looking at um, the current state of criticism within Canada and um, this growing idea of a democratized criticism and what that means for criticism itself. Um, but the symposium was a chance to bring together um, 10 of the leading experts in this area, critics, um, editors, um, as well as academics for a day of discussion, just to really start the conversation um, around popular criticism. I think it's at a kind of a, a key junction in its own history. So it's a chance to to, to maybe more so ask questions and answer questions, um, but to begin looking at um, what criticism is and what it needs to be. Um, the reason for the interest in it for myself is the fact that I see it as one of the main thresholds between the public understanding and appreciation for architecture um, and the profession, as well as the academic understanding of criticism.
0: Right, and we're going to hear from a lot of those experts, but I wanted to ask you, as, as the person who put this all together, um, who is architectural criticism for?
1: Now, it's a, that's a great question. Um, what I think Pop Can Crit is really focusing on is one part of criticism. There, there is academic criticism, there's historical criticism, um, but I think the key part of this is the popular nature. So this is criticism that is intended for the general public, um, for, for a lay public, um, for anybody and everybody who experiences architecture on a daily basis, which is um, the majority of us. So it's a chance for, um, for the critic to speak to the public.
0: Okay, and so we're going to go to this conference in a bit, but uh, we usually start the show off with uh, This is Spacing Radio. Do you want to help me out on three? Sounds great. Three, two, one. This This is Spacing spacing radio. Radio. Broadcasting from the cloakroom of Carleton University's Azraeli School of Architecture in Ottawa, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, the first of our two-part episode covering the PopCan Crit Conference on Canadian Architectural Criticism. We're going to listen in on a case study discussion that brings up important questions about the role of the architecture critic in Canadian cities. But first, we ask why we need architecture criticism. Who is the critic and what do they do? In this segment, you'll hear the expert voices of David Theodore, Sophie Girone, Sean McAuliffe, Marco Polo, and Trevor Bodie. Stand by.
2: Everyone likes the idea of architectural criticism. Far fewer like the actual practice of architectural criticism. Okay, it's uh, Trevor Bodie, long O. Trevor Bodie, architecture critic and urbanist is the short form. Or Trevor Bodie, architecture critic, curator and consulting urban designer. That's the long version. My experience is that the public loves it. But architects, editors, developers, advertisers, deans, magazines, and newspapers often do not. This makes for some critical conundrums. Okay, so the first question coming off of this conference is, why do we need
0: architecture criticism?
2: Well, I think um, architecture critics are the peas under the mattresses of the princesses of the world. We are the the reminder of... there being another order.
3: I am Sophie Gironet. I am co-founder and director of the Maison de l'Architecture du Québec in Montreal, and also writer and journalist in architecture. We need architecture criticism as much as we need criticism and critic eye on our world. We need to think about it. We need to understand it. And we need to decode it and tell it and everything. So... It's the same for architecture, for how our world around us is taking shape. Why is it taking that shape instead of that other shape? And um, critics are useful in that sense, that they have to uh, work hard as research and analysis and telling stories when other people are doing other things.
4: Uh, David Theodore, assistant professor at the School of Architecture at McGill University. Architectural criticism is a middle-brow endeavor. It's not dealing with the sophistication and sophistries of history and theory. It also has very little concern with math culture. You don't see many articles about uh, the architecture of Tim Hortons or Walmart or even airports. We're not
2: concerned with low culture and we're not concerned with high culture. We're middle-brows. One form of criticism, which I call activist criticism, which is towards an end, to change things, to make a better world. The next uh, tradition I propose, I call it the moralist tradition. Why do we need architecture criticism?
4: Well, we don't. We want it. There are different things. Uh, It's wonderful to read good writing about stuff, and architecture is one of the things we want to read good writing about. So we, we we want it. I don't know that we need it.
2: So the architecture critic is activist, architecture critic as moralist. Architecture critics are, we're a very funny species. We're tiny. Uh, We figured out today, in the course of events, if you define architecture critic as someone who makes a living by writing on buildings, there's not enough of us in Canada to fill a taxi. The third um, tradition comes from Germany. From German Wittgauer Semper, nineteenth-century German scholarship and writing, this is what I you might call it formalist
5: or theoretical. Hi, I'm Marco Polo, a professor in the Department of Architectural Science at Ryerson University. Uh, my research is focused on the history and criticism of Canadian architecture. Strictly speaking, the responsibility of the academy in the construct of the traditional research university is the creation of knowledge, right? Not so much the dissemination, but the creation. And if you look at the, the kind of mandates of the traditional research university, teaching is actually a secondary mandate. It's research and the creation of knowledge that are the primary one, which is what leads often to this idea of academic uh, criticism and academic writing as being kind of hermetic and esoteric. At
2: best, this writing is exceptionally rigorous and unbeholden to the distractions of time and place of its creation, but at its worst, it could be pretentious philosophizing or portless formal
5: analysis. I think it's actually quite different in, in our experience, in, in Canada at least. Well, we need someone who can contextualize for the public who may not have a background in architecture or understand the forces. Um, And processes that lead to architectural projects to help clarify some of those issues um, too often I think people respond to architecture from a purely aesthetic uh, point of view it's ugly I don't like it uh, it, you know it doesn't fit in Um, and I think the architecture critic has the ability and the responsibility to place the projects in a larger context and and hopefully try to explain why architecture turns out to be the way it, it, it does
6: So I don't actually think of myself as an architecture critic. Um, uh, When I was watching the earlier panel of, I don't know, real architecture critic, I was like, oh, I'm not an architecture critic. Um, I kind of have stumbled into this by accident. Um, I I don't have a background in architecture. I did political science uh, and... And uh, moved to Toronto and was just really fascinated with the city and the uh, the landscape there and started writing about it and architecture criticism kind of came became part of that um, but is not the whole part of it. Hi I'm Sean McAuliffe I am a editor and writer at Spacing magazine and a columnist at the Toronto Star. We need architecture criticism to make architecture better just like any profession or political movement or, or restaurants or uh, art, uh, you need an outside critic to come in and uh, kind of take a fresh look at it That who, who doesn't necessarily ha- have skin in the game or invested in the project itself just like a, a, a kind of informal critique process, if you will in the marketplace of ideas, I guess um, the, the critic's role, it's very, it's, it's an independent role, it's kind of often self-generated um, but these outside voices Uh, are are really necessary to breathing uh, new ideas and new ways of looking at um, things that get built in our city.
4: Both academics and popular critics uh, have switched from architecture as concern to urbanism as the main concern.
5: People who are interested in architecture and design in our country tend to get exposed to it at the post-secondary level. So if you have not had that exposure, uh, and that is your, your audience in the popular media you are writing for people who don't necessarily have the foundational knowledge necessary to understand the complexity.
6: Um, I think the, the audiences, uh, academic and pop, uh, overlap a lot, and, but the, the, the member, the audience member, decides what they're looking for at that moment. Probably, and I think if they're reading the Star, uh, they're not reading Canadian Architect, or, or you know, like they they kind of there's expectations that
5: the audience brings. I have just the greatest respect for someone who has to struggle with five, six, seven hundred word articles in a newspaper to try and get across the the degree of complexity that architectural criticism requires. It's an extraordinary feat. It's also particularly challenging because in general you're writing for an audience if they're not schooled specifically in architecture and design who have little or no foundational knowledge about any of those issues because that doesn't really form part of our general education. If you want to reach an audience obviously you have to present material in a way that is engaging. Um, I resist the term entertainment, but maybe that's just because I'm a prissy academic. I want to appeal to the broadest uh, audience, um, so the
6: language I use is very kind of general. I tend not to use uh, the architecture criticism language. I just, I tend, what I want to do is get people excited about the landscape um, around them. So my uh, my kind of uh, mo when I write a piece um, uh, that might include architecture in it, uh, it, it's a kind of a general. I want to get people interested in a thing and and entertain a little bit, um, which is sometimes the difficult thing of composing a weekly column, of being entertaining at the same time so they keep coming back um, and also uh, say something in between there. Um, So I always find that's my challenge. I want to just push people to look and see and make up their own minds. I love talking about Robarts Library in Toronto to the Toronto audience because it's the most hated building in Toronto. Once when I was giving a walking tour, it's one of the the only time I've ever been physically pushed, uh, standing in front of this building telling people why I love it. Uh, So they just pushed me and said, no, it's bad. Uh, So I realized at that moment I can keep revisiting this and people will kind of be attracted to it or not attracted to it. I, I think I'm trying to like push pe- nudge people, and this gets to the advocacy uh, aspect that you were talking about uh, into appreciating um, uh, what we have and, and not just kind of overlooking it, thinking we have uh, garbage everywhere, and then every once in a while, um, kind of using a little sledgehammer and saying, "Well, maybe this is bad, maybe this is bad, but overwhelmingly trying to um, celebrate what we have.
0: Now, that's a lot to take in. And what the architectural critic's role is largely depends on who you ask. That's why we're going to sit in on a panel discussion about a recent controversial development in Toronto's downtown core. You'll hear moderator Maria Cook and architecture critics Lisa Rochon and Alex Bozakovic as they try to look back over their coverage of this particular development and discuss whether they serve the public through their criticism. Essential to the debate is the distinction between formal and functional criticism. Is it a critic's role to shape policy, to champion exciting new forms? Both. Let's go there now.
3: Okay, so this is the uh, this is the last panel of the day, and then there'll be a roundtable talk. Um, so in this session, uh, we're going to look at the question of criticism in relation to a dramatic current project in Toronto. Um, it's marketed as Mervish plus Gary. It's named for the developer, David Mervish and architect Frank Gary. Uh, it's a billion-dollar project that is going to soon start on King Street near Roy Thompson Hall. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on it so that I can understand uh, um, how it all unfolded. Uh, So the project, uh, as it is, there'll be uh, close to 2,000 condos in two towers. One is 92 storeys and 1,000 feet high. The other is a little shorter at 82 storeys. They rise above a multi-level podium with luxury shops, an exhibition space for the Ontario College of Art and Design, and a gallery for the Mervishes Collection of Art. The Princess of Wales Theatre, which is a Mervish property already on the site, will be preserved. So about exactly four years ago, the project was announced as a game-changer for Toronto by Mervish and Gary. The announcement took place at the Art Gallery of Ontario. At that time, uh, the Princess of Wales Theatre and several other heritage buildings were going to be demolished and replaced with six storeys of high-end retail and 2,700 condos filled 2,700 condos um, and three towers packed closely together. So in this initial proposal, Gary and Mervish sought to challenge Toronto's official urban design plan and the community values which underpinned it. Less than two hours after launching the proposal, City Council enthusiastically voted in favour. The project that they approved had evolved considerably. So, the question for the panel is what role architectural critics played in this, and what was the role of public pressure and opinion? And just to set the stage again, um, the architectural reviewers, uh, in large part, including uh, I'd say, say Alex and Lisa, uh, gave qualified support for the project from the beginning, but the public uh, was much less enthusiastic. And so, to quote one citizen speaking at council, a condo tower is a condo tower, and Toronto has lost too many heritage buildings already. So, uh, we're interested in what this case study says about criticism today and the relationship between professional critics and the general public, and as I said, the role that architectural critics played in how this project unfolded and what was the role of public pressure and opinion. So, who'd like to go
7: first? Well, hi. Hi again. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it is a fascinating case study, and um, I think it raises so many issues, which we've been discussing today. Um, One is, you know, how much should the architecture critic assume in terms of power? And so when the architecture critic weighs in, to me, that is not... um, um, an indication that one project will go a certain way. I mean, an architecture critic can influence voice, can influence developers, can influence um, city urban designers and planners, but I think it would be really naive to imagine that the critic is working on a kind of singular position. There are so many voices, and the city is such a complex organism, um, that many, many players are involved in these decisions. So, oh, there I am. And um, this was at the unveiling of the scheme at the AGO. And um, Frank Gehry, of course, had come off a kind of honeymoon um, relationship with Toronto at that time. His art gallery, Ontario, I think, had uh, enjoyed a very uh, positive impact on the city, Uh, I had reviewed it very favorably in the Globe. It uh, was considered to be um, a significant warming up of the institution. Um, And it was, of course, opened, the AGO, at about the same time that the MoMA was also um, opened and and, uh, redeveloped uh, by Taniguchi. Um, And so there was this kind of honeymoon uh, moment that Gary was enjoying... And then David Mervish, who has a, an extraordinary collection of colour field paintings, which I've seen um, in a very discreet, low-rise warehouse, um, wanted to do something significant for the city. Uh, at, the, at the core, he wanted to unveil his collection of American art, uh, primarily American art, to Toronto on his own terms. He has never wanted to share any of his collection with the AGO or any other institution. And so he prefers to keep his extraordinary collection behind uh, locked doors in this little warehouse or large warehouse. Um, the, uh, Frank has always considered his AGO redevelopment to be a reno job. Um, he so prefers creating the singular... Um, new build. He is much more about creating uh, exuberant architecture that is fresh from the ground a la Bilbao than doing renovations. And So that was always his complaint with the AGO commission. And for him uh, eliminating the four warehouses and the Princess of Wales um, held no problem for him. He wanted to build fresh and create an exciting new destination for the downtown core. Um, there w- next slide there was um, considerable backlash and so in the top slide we see the original scheme um, with with a complex um, podium which included not only very large gallery space for the Mervish collection uh but also an OCAD satellite uh building and um, three towers um, rising up to 90 stories high. In the lower iteration, you see the much more scaled back scheme, uh, which um, was pulled back hugely by um, our current chief planner, Jennifer Kismat. She felt that uh, inserting uh, three towers um, and thousands of people at that particular area in King would, be, uh, would further degrade the public experience. The public realm was simply not Sufficient transit was still not able to cope with what is horrible downtown congestion, and so the the scheme was pulled way back. Apparently, Frank and Davis, David David Mervish are content with this uh, new iteration, and um, and so it goes. It is being planned uh, for the downtown core. At the same time, the downtown core and uh, the planners um, are holding breakfast meetings, I'm on one of those breakfast champions leadership things, trying to envision what the downtown core needs over the next 30 years. So this is one of those critical um, anchors um, that is being very carefully considered in the larger context of a very congested um, and taxed downtown. My opinion is that there could be some fantastic gains for the downtown. I mean, I think if you go to any city from New York to um, Jakarta to Paris, there, it's all about not so much life in your condo, but life on the streets. And that is where the great living rooms are occurring. And so bringing people out, tantalizing them into the streets, into the galleries, into the restaurants is part of this discussion as we consider the the Mervish Gary.
3: I think that sort of leads to um, a question I have is that, and maybe Alex might might address it, um, why would Critics support a proposal by a single developer which goes against the urban design plan of the city of Toronto. Its zoning bylaws destroys heritage buildings and a theatre in order to bring in condos and luxury shopping. What are the values at play here?
8: That is an excellent question, and that was not the set of questions that uh, I was asking when this thing was first unveiled, when I wrote about it for my own blog and for Spacing um, I also wrote a sort of a news article for Architect Magazine, but I didn't really approach it critically at the time. Lisa was quite supportive of it um, in in her first piece, if, if I recall correctly. You had um, you know had you raised a set of issues about sustainability, about the quality of the public realm, you know certain values and certain things that should be fixed. But basically, you were excited.
7: Well, I was really excited by the audacity of it, yeah. um, and that I think that Toronto is a very measured city. Um, We have had some uh, moments, like the Toronto Dominion, um, the Santiago Calatrava, Atrium. We've had moments of exhilarating architecture. And to me, um, we have been so uh, drowned in banal condo developments, uh, which all typically use about the same green glass from China. And I found the kind of level of sameness around downtown... Um, building to be suffocating and um, so to me it was um, uh, it had the promise of something iconic and at the same time I had reservations so I think I listed for pretty large reservations around what are what are these high towers doing in terms of um, Humanity, like the the kind of disconnect that people are feeling in these towers where there is kind of the highest incidence of suicide uh, in Toronto. And, um, you know, is it a sustainable proposition or after 30 stories, is it really just a play to the ego? Um, and And I also question the kind of greed around why... If you want to showcase your art collection, why you need to do ninety stories? Did you write? Times did you write three.
8: that though? Sorry to interrupt, but I don't really. I don't no, remember. No, I don't writing think
7: that. I used the word greed at that time. No, I don't remember that.
8: I don't, I don't think you did. I know I, I certainly didn't, and I don't really think, from either of us or from a lot of the other critics who looked at it. Certainly, Christopher Hume and the Star, there was really a lot of critical. There was. There wasn't a lot of critical questioning of the sort of the basis of the scheme. Um, You know, the initial scheme, which had three towers and which had 2,700 units on it, um, in addition to a lot of retail space, this gallery and cultural space for OCAD University, um, you know, that... (sighs) The details got kind of overlooked in this initial um, flashy unveiling of the project. Um, So if we can skip ahead from this, this is Gary and David Mervish at that same unveiling. If we can just go to the next slide. Um, This is the first proposal again. And you can get a sense, we've already seen this now, but you can get a sense of the scale of it. Um, But this is a graphic from a piece that I wrote uh, the better part of a year later that starts to, where I started to look at this project a little bit more critically. My... After my initial response, which is similar to Lisa's, of being excited about the the quality of this building, I mean, I was certainly, and I remain excited about the quality of it. I mean, Gary can do, although he has rarely, he can do a very good high-rise. Anyone who's seen the high-rise apartment tower he finished in Lower Manhattan a few years ago knows this. I mean, that is an interesting building, or at least on two sides it is, um, that is very well built, uh, very well realized. So the idea that that should happen there on this site and that there should be a tall residential building on this site, um, you know, I don't think is really in question. Why it needed to be 2,700 units or why it even needs to be 1,900 units for that matter, you know, with a half million square feet of retail, uh, you know, is another question entirely. Um, You know, David Mervish is certainly interested in doing a legacy project for the city, but he's also interested in making a lot of money. Um, and the Mervish family, as they began to do this, sold off the site of Honest Ed's, the discount store, and the entire block of land that surrounded it, which they'd been holding for decades as basically a land bank. Um, you know, and people are sentimental about that, but that's, that's another story. Um, you know, they made something like $180 million from the sale of that land. They own this site entirely. So this is not a typical developer proposition where you have to cram in a lot of revenue-generating space in order to make the thing work. They didn't need to do anything at all. I mean, beyond funding the museum itself, this new gallery that Mervish is creating, and setting up an, um, an endowment to fund it, you know, they didn't really need to do a project at all. So you know, the idea that this needed to be in the form that it is in and that it needed to be as large as it is, you know, is not... That is David Mervish's argument, and that is a developer's argument. And I think...
3: How did you challenge it?
8: Well, I sort of challenged it the next year with a piece that was accompanied by this graphic, and I raised a few points uh, in that. I didn't say it was a bad idea, but in short, you know, I started to look at it more as a story about urban design and about the planning process in Toronto than about the architecture of this building itself. Because I think, you know, we're agreed that the quality of the architecture is going to be good. Um, And that's not really what's in question. Um, But this shows you the scale of some buildings that exist uh, in the neighborhood, the red ones having been, if I recall correctly, proposed, yeah, approved, but not built. And then, you know, Gary's sketches inserted on this. You know, it was 20, nearly 30 stories taller than anything else that's been proposed in the neighborhood. Uh, Next slide. So this, this shows you uh, the King's Bedina neighborhood in Toronto, where this thing sits. So this is, for those who don't know, this is one of two places, two industrial neighborhoods on the shoulders of downtown Toronto, which were uh, industrial and warehousing districts. Um, this one primarily home to the garment industry. And in the late 1990s, there, nothing was happening here, because the industry had basically died in Canada. Uh, and so there was very little commercial activity and very little development Uh, because the city was interested in protecting this neighborhood for uh, employment uses. So what they did was to open up the planning in this area, and another one, um, through something that was called the Two Kings. Uh, Jane Jacobs had a significant influence on, on making this happen. And the idea was, by loosening up the zoning, to let developers come in and shake things up and bring some prosperity and bring some people. Now, that succeeded in ways that really nobody anticipated Uh, the scale of the development that's come into that neighborhood in the past almost 20 years has been extraordinary and the context in toronto is that the city has been growing rapidly economically and in terms of population and all of that has created a strong demand for new housing and there are very few places in toronto where that can go um, most of the house neighborhoods around the edges of downtown have been protected uh, by the city's official plan, and that is, in political terms, untouchable. I mean, those neighborhoods cannot, are not allowed to take any form of even sort of incremental intensification, which I think is a huge problem. But that's the reality, and instead what has happened is that a lot of the growth has gone into a few places, including this one, where there used to be nobody living, uh, essentially. And so there were no neighbourhood associations in place to fight all of this new development. And I've talked to city planners about this, and they, don't, they did not anticipate anywhere near the scale of development. Even five years ago, they didn't anticipate the heights and densities that they're getting now. And we have to understand, too, that the planning process in Toronto is incredibly murky and opaque and unpredictable and political. So, in essence, the city, whatever the city's official plan calls for in this area now uh, is loose, but the densities and heights that it calls for are unrealistically low. So everybody understands that whatever is permitted, whatever is as of right here, is not going to happen. Um, The city planners don't want it to happen. Um, And there's also another overlay of provincial policy that demands intensification, which means more people Along transit lines and in the central city. Alex, so, can yeah. I
3: can I jump in? Please. Okay, um, I think you know we're, we're trying to. Um, I think maybe rather than understand all the ins and outs of this. I think we're trying to understand. Um, we're using this as a case study for for criticism and and how it works and what are its impacts and what the critic says versus um, how how the public reacts and also I guess your role in terms of. Um, you know whether you, how much you support or how much you you challenge a controversial project.
8: So I, I am getting there. I promise.
3: Yeah. Okay. Because I mean, I'm looking at uh, one of your early art, one of the first articles, and you know the complex could make an exciting impact on the city. Mr. Mervish has made important contributions to the city. It's a reference to the brilliant Mr. Gary. Um You know he's arguably the greatest living architect. Um, uh, you know, Lisa um, says that even the space between the up to 85-story towers, if all three are ultimately built, could create fascinating Willy wee figures in the sky. Gary knows how to do tall, um, so it's all like this is really very cool. Um, and but the public is saying, no, this is not
7: cool. So how I sort of disagree because. I don't know about that. Actually, the city planning department didn't think it was so cool. But the public, actually, like there was an incredible outpouring of love for this, the audacity and the exuberance of this project. What and was the
3: reaction you had to, to your coverage?
7: Positive. Okay. Like, you know, like I, I think that I, tr- I attempted in my piece to say this is, this is a chance, right? And this is to think, I mean, why does New York just get to do super tall? Right, and they are doing plenty. I mean, in in the city of Toronto, I think there are about 200 applications for condo developments. Ninety-eight percent of them will be super banal. And, 2, I, and 1, I thought
8: the city has 2,300 applications in right now for a multifamily residential project. So maybe
7: project. it's 200 being built. Yeah, yeah, under yeah. construction. It's, yeah. cr- it's it is insane. The volume is nuts, and so the volume is huge. Here was an opportunity, as as Gary had shown in in New York at Beekman Tower, to really rethink the curtain wall which we've got ad nauseum and so it was like punched windows and curved and that you know there was something new and daring and um, in terms of client this was an amazing client architect supportive like those kind of you know Seagram Phyllis Lambert kind of um, relationship and I just thought that it held um, a lot of bravery and but but of course we're writing these pieces. Maybe it comes off. You have to sometimes be a booster, um, a civic booster, and sort of uh, push, and um, but not be naive. And I also understood that what was being proposed would never actually get approved. Um, and I thought that you know that was just, you know, it's like in class actions they ask for this and they might get that. They there is a whole dialogue. And of course the, the development did go to the OMB. So I think my role as an architecture critic in this case was to uh, provide some energy and fuel, and um, encourage the daring. And at the same time, I had reservations, some deep reservations.
8: See, I don't agree that our role is to be boosters. I just, I, I guess, I fundamentally disagree about that. You know, it happens because you know you love this, you love the city, and I love the city, or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. But you know, what I was winding towards saying there is that. That burst of enthusiasm, and there was a lot of public enthusiasm for the projects to which we contributed, um, you know, helped make gain political support for the project. And David Mervish gave public talks, you know, including speaking to the, the Empire Club, you know, and I think the city's Board of Trade, basically making that same kind of rhetorical argument that, you know, Toronto should stop, you know cutting down the tall poppy and start aiming for the sky. Well, I mean, that is self-serving nonsense. I mean, it absolutely is from top to bottom. As I said, there's no reason whatsoever that this thing has to be as big as it is, and there was never any argument about how big it should be. Um, So really, the question becomes, what does it... does it make sense to have this level of density and this level of height, and does it matter? And that's when I came back to this after a few months. That was the approach that I took. Not as clearly, I think, or as early as I would have liked. Like I said, I I think I kind of missed the boat on this. But, um, you know, I think that matters. And why does it matter? Partly because, you know, Lisa and I would both love to see this thing happen in some sort of grand form. But because of this complex planning process, once the developers have succeeded in building a building of 92 stories... People who own land in the neighborhood are going to be able to use that as a precedent to ask for similar heights and similar densities, and that's happening already. And they are not hiring Frank Gehry, and that is going to add a tremendous amount of density to what is already an arguably an overcrowded neighborhood. So in that way, which is not Mervish's fault exactly, but you know, it's 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 a result of the this very you know strange planning process that Toronto has. But, you know, polit- I mean, this is all political to a certain degree because planning, the plant city planning department can recommend whatever it likes, but ultimately council agrees or doesn't agree with the thing, uh, city council, and then that can be overruled by the OMB, the Ontario Municipal Board. So there's a lot of political pressure on the city councillors and indirectly then on the city planners. And I think, you know... Uh, Chris Hume wrote a piece, which I think was not his finest hour, where he referred to the city's chief planner Jennifer Kiesmatt as a hick, essentially, for you know, raising objections with this project, which I thought was just, you know, again, not really not his finest hour, um, you know, and really the opposite of what we as critics should have been doing in this circumstance, because I mean, this is not architecture criticism can't only be formal criticism, uh, you know, and even if that is one's bent, then you know, one has to be aware of you know, the impact that a project like this, great that it may be in purely architectural terms, in purely formal terms, you know, the impact that that it's having on the city. I mean, that's just as much a part of the story, you know, arguably a bigger part of the story than the fact of having one remarkable building actually get done, I
6: think.
0: that's the show thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please tell your favorite critic your eccentric professor and passing flaneurs we are a monthly podcast and next month we bring you part two of our pop can crit special Popcam Crypt was presented by Spacing Magazine and the Israeli School of Architecture with funding support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Sponsors were the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, Carleton Immersive Media Studio, Carlton Hughes Faculty of Engineering and Design, and the Ontario Association of Architects. Thanks to supporters Arc Hotel, Astley Gilbert, Fauna, Building 22, and the Maison de l'Architecture du Québec. Organizers are Kristen Gagnon, Bryn Campbell, Matthew Blackett, and Stephen Fly. I produced this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions at pixelpi.ca. Hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and scoops on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G L Y N B O W E R M A N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. Until next time, please don't assault architecture critics, no matter what you think of the Robots Library. Cheers.